0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, I'm Philip Coggan the Buttonwood columnist of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, growth in the Eurozone is slowing down. Is that a sign of future problems? Or just a sniffle?
2: Some on the ECB, including the President, might be looking at the slowdown and using it perhaps as a reason to hold off making any big decisions.
1: And why the harder the Brexit, the softer the cheese as far as Ireland is concerned. Authentic buffalo mozzarella. Doesn't have to be Italian. Oh no. So, if you're looking for the taste of Italy, Buongiorno. look to Cork. First, commodity prices are rising. Oil prices now are above $70 a barrel. President Trump's tweet that oil prices were artificially high could have a significant impact. The market is particularly sensitive at the moment to geopolitical factors and the repercussions they cause. Henry Trix is The Economist's energy and commodities editor. Henry, oil is obviously the one that most people are interested in and causes most economic damage. Why is that price rising?
3: Well, it's been a combination of things, but the market is been getting tighter for the last year and a half or so. And we've got to a point now where OPEC and Russia, who've been trying to engineer a deal to cut back production enough so that stocks of oil reach their five-year average levels, they seem to have succeeded. And so the market for the first time in a long time is actually looking tight. And at that moment, it becomes particularly susceptible to comments, fears, and there are any number of geopolitical issues out there that are basically underpinning higher oil prices. And actually, you see this throughout the commodities markets as well. In the metals markets, in the grains markets, geopolitical factors have suddenly become the thing that everyone's talking about and everyone's terrified of.
1: So Iran, would that be one of the biggest factors behind the rise in the oil price?
3: Yes, the fear I guess that
1: the Trump administration
3: will no longer waive sanctions on Iran is leading to the possibility that Iran would take some of its oil out of the market. Not not necessarily a lot, but some of it. And again, at, at a moment when the markets are tight, that could be one of the factors that's pushing oil prices higher. There's also concern about sanctions on Venezuela if its elections next month prove to be particularly controversial. And you know, Venezuelan oil production is plummeting at the moment. So extra oil taken off from the country that sits on one of the world's biggest reserves of oil is another factor that's basically pushing up prices.
1: And if we go back a couple of years, the Saudis and others were trying to force the oil price down to try and drive the US shale producers out of the market. Has that failed as an idea?
3: Yes, it has failed. The shale producers are there. They're trying to pump as much as possible. There's a question at the moment about how much they can because they're beginning to come up against capacity constraints just in terms of pipelines and that sort of thing. But with oil prices now above $70 a barrel, this is a particularly good time for the shale producers. What's quite interesting, and yet another geopolitical factor that's um, been sort of lobbed into the oil markets since last Friday, is the fact that Donald Trump tweeted on the oil price right in the middle of an OPEC, non-OPEC meeting, announced that he felt that oil prices were too high, artificially high. And this could represent quite a significant move because he is effectively looking at higher gasoline prices in America, just as the driving season is picking up. There's midterm elections later on this year. He's clearly worried that consumers are looking at higher prices and saying, you know, what's behind this? This is a bit like a tax increase. We've actually got less money in our wallets as a result of these higher prices. So, Yeah, you may have thought that America would love higher prices because that benefits the shale oil producers, but not to the point where it starts to hurt consumers. And this is why Trump is involved.
1: And what could he do about it, though?
3: Well, a tweet, It's just a tweet. (laughs) Um, But he could. I mean, there have been efforts by American presidents in the past to jawbone the market lower. He could get on the phone to the Saudi crown prince and say, you know, look, you know, this is not on. There is even speculation that they may try and reintroduce a version of the Sherman Act that was used to break up Standard Oil all those years ago to try and hold OPEC accountable as a monopoly. Uh, or as a cartel. So there there are things that he could do. But ultimately, the ball is really in Saudi Arabia and Russia's court.
1: Oil is not the only price that's been moving. Aluminium, aluminum has been quite volatile recently. What's going on there, Henry? Henry.
3: We had another example of how geopolitics is just messing with these markets. The aluminium price has risen dramatically over the last couple of weeks because of the US imposed sanctions on Rusal, which is one of the world's biggest aluminium producers out of Russia. This took a lot of aluminium straight out of the market. Roussel accounts for about 6% of global production. But this week, the Treasury actually revised its view on sanctions against Roussel and eased them to the extent that it's possible to keep on trading with Roussel for months longer than they'd stipulated beforehand, which caused a huge fall in the market, in the aluminium market on Monday, an 8% fall, which was the biggest decline since 2005. All this is a reflection of just how nervous investors, speculators, producers, everyone must be about the influence of politics on on markets.
1: From Roussel with Love. Henry, do you think this is a great commodity super cycle again, or is this just one of those temporary blips that you can get in prices?
3: I think that this is still a temporary blip. I don't think that we are back to the races again in commodity prices for the next few years. I think what's worrying at the moment is the level of speculative longs in many commodities markets, particularly oil at the moment. And that's always a risk factor. When people go too much on one side, there's the opportunity of a, a sharp sell-off.
1: Henry Tricks, thanks very much. Next, is the eurozone economy facing a nasty surprise this year? In twenty seventeen, the region saw a strong recovery, but forecasts are already being revised down, and there's a belief that growth has already peaked. Ratchina Sean Bogue is our business correspondent. Ratchina, why are the numbers turning? Everything seemed to be going so well for the Eurozone.
2: That's right. Um, 2017 was the the strongest year since 2007 in terms of growth rates, but monthly indicators since the start of the year just seem to have, have slowed down a little bit. There's lots of different hypotheses for why that might be happening. Some of them are temporary, and as a result, you wouldn't expect the the slowdown to last. For example, the the winter was particularly cold. There was a nasty outbreak of flu in Germany, and those that weren't struck down by the flu were on strike. And you might expect all of those to be contributing to just a blip in growth. Now, there are less sort of benign explanations for this as well. The euro has been very strong, and that could have had an impact on the monthly trade figures, and you might expect that to last a little bit longer. Fears of protectionism as well and an American trade war with China could affect Germany's export prospects, for example. So that could sort of start to mean that growth is weaker for a much longer period. But to be honest, many economists were expecting growth to slow anyway. The euro area economy is growing much faster than its long-term growth rate of about 1.5%. And it's only natural that as the output gap starts to close and there's less spare capacity in the economy that growth, current growth rates start to return to potential.
1: But that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the UK and the US, you have unemployment rates of 4% or so. So it's plausible the output gap may have closed completely. But in some parts of Europe, France, for example, you have still very high unemployment rates if the economy is slowing already when there appears to be so much spare capacity in the labour market. That's a problem for political leaders, isn't it?
2: That's true. You have a divergent picture across the euro area. For example, in Germany, unemployment has not been lower for decades, I think. And there's lots of debate about how much spare capacity there is in the economy, even among the governing council of the ECB. Some think that there's plenty to go and it will be years really until growth returns to potential. Others are pointing to some survey evidence of capacity constraints in the manufacturing sector and suggesting that perhaps unemployment might just not come down to pre-crisis levels.
1: Now, you talked to the ECB. There's been much debate as to whether the ECB will stop its quantitative easing programme. It's slowing the rate of bond purchases. Do you think they'll be thinking again given these signs of a slowdown?
2: I think some on the ECB, including the President Draghi, might be looking at the slowdown and using it perhaps as a reason to hold off making any big decisions. But there are others, such as the Germans, that might be on the more hawkish side and might want to stick with the plan of tapering purchases around the end of the year.
1: Now, it's not just the Eurozone that's slowing, is it? The UK is also seeing a slowdown Last year was seen as the great global synchronised growth period. 2018 doesn't seem quite as positive as last year.
2: That's right. I mean, Q1 in general seems to have been slightly disappointing across many countries. And with lots of risks on the horizon, the outlook just doesn't seem as rosy as um, 2017 was.
1: Rajana, thank you very much. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. Thank you to the listeners who got in touch after last week's show. We discussed the departure of Sir Martin Sorrell from WPP. One listener said, Having worked for some of the digital industry titans, like Yahoo, Apple and Microsoft, and subsequently seen, internally, the shift from traditional media investments to digital, your assessment that margins are being squeezed is both accurate and undersold. I predict massive agency closures within companies like Dentsu Aegis, WPP, Havas... OMG, and publicists, as tighter consumer data laws come into effect and the fiscal agendas of big brands move towards dealing with big ad tech companies directly. Another listener commented on our coverage of the U.S. Postal Service's story. The retail post offices could remain U.S. government property, which would be responsible for their upkeep. The U.S. government could guarantee the existing pensions but require a privatised USPS to fund new pension obligations for new hires. A private USPS ought to be able to obtain a banking licence and offer no-fee retail banking for consumers. The point is to offer no-frills banking to people who probably have no bank account and those who want to avoid the fees associated with their current bank account. Hopefully, the banking and postal arms will be fully integrated as well, and offer access to US Treasury savings bonds and T-bills. In those circumstances, I support USPS privatisation. We love to hear from you. Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, a slightly
0: cheesy story: Cork is miles away from Naples, but it's where Johnny Lynch's Buffalo roam and where he gets the milk to make his prize-winning Buffalo mozzarella. The dairy
1: industry in Ireland is considering moving away from production of cheddar. Britain is the main buyer of cheddar, but Irish farmers are worried that Brexit might change that. So they've fermented a plan and are embracing the production of cheeses such as mozzarella instead. Tom Wainwright is the Economist's Britain editor. So, Tom, doesn't everybody in the world gorge on cheddar?
0: No, apparently not, actually. I mean, here in Britain, people absolutely love it. But worldwide, the only countries with really big appetites for this stuff are Britain, Ireland, which is obviously a smallish market, and the US, which is a massive market, but has plenty of its own producers. And this is a bit of a problem because Irish producers are wondering where on earth they're going to sell all this stuff after Brexit if it's harder for them to export to the UK. They make 200,000 tonnes of the stuff every year and now they're wondering where they're going to sell it.
1: How Dependent on our market,
0: are they? How much of production uh, is sold to Britain? The majority of it. So if you look at all the cheese made in Ireland each year, about 90% of that is cheddar. And of all that, something like 60% goes to the UK. So it's a very, very big chunk for them to potentially lose.
1: And what about Ireland's issues in moving to these other cheeses? Can you just easily switch to mozzarella? Will other European consumers accept the idea of Irish mozzarella?
0: Well that remains to be seen. It's difficult for them. They're looking, it's not just mozzarella I mean one big company there is uh, making Jarlsberg which is a Norwegian variety and others are said to be looking at Edam and Gouda and other ones. The brand could be an issue um, although actually most of the Irish cheese industry supplies the food industry so they're not selling stuff directly for retail, they're selling it to uh, go into ingredients for ready meals, uh, topping for pizzas, that kind of stuff. So the Branding might not be a massive uh, problem. Technically, though, there could be some issues. One of the uh, features of the Irish dairy industry is that the milk supply is very, very seasonal because the cows there feed on grass. And so they produce loads of milk in the spring and summer, hardly any in the winter. And cheddar is a good cheese to make because it means that they can take all this kind of fluctuating supply of milk and put it into cheeses which mature at different rates. You can leave cheddar for a couple of years if you want to. Fresh cheeses, though, like mozzarella, uh, it's harder to do that. If you want to make a really good mozzarella, you can't leave it hanging around for a year. So there could be some issues there. Um, Another thing they've come across is a a problem with coloration. And Irish butter makers always proudly talk about how the grass uh, gives Irish butter this nice kind of golden colour. But with mozzarella, that's not really what people want you know you want your mozzarella to be a nice pure white color so some people have found out that it comes out a slightly yucky kind of yellow color which might not be all that appetizing
1: and you've just been to ireland written a big r- report are there other industries which are adjusting their uh, products to try and cope with brexit
0: yeah i mean this is a, a much much broader problem really i mean the uk is by far the biggest export market for ireland um And the UK obviously includes Northern Ireland, which uh, does a lot of trade at the moment with the Republic of Ireland in the south. We see problems or potential problems in lots of industries. Agriculture in general is a big one. The beef industry, for instance, is one that is very worried about this. The thing is, though, cheese is facing these particular problems precisely because the type of cheese they make is cheddar, which no one else really eats in very big quantities. So for them, looking around for other export markets is particularly difficult, which is why we're seeing these changes uh, taking place now.
1: Well, you can imagine how the cheese problem will make them crackers. Tom Waywright, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Subscribe to The Economist at economist.com/slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. And please rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Philip Coggan, and in London, this is The Economist.